Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 1 today. Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help as we approach your word today. We ask you to uh, open our minds, open our hearts uh, to hear what you would have us hear. And pray that you give me clarity uh, and courage to speak your word with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we could say that Psalm 1, if it says anything very clearly, we could say that it is teaching us that there is a right way and a wrong way. Uh, not like my boss in the trades used to say, a right way and a long way. <laughs> uh, what we learn in Psalm 1 is there is a right way and a wrong way. There's a way to be righteous and a way to be what the psalmist calls wicked. Wicked. It's not a term we use in our culture much today, but we should not shy away from it. The idea is that there is a way to live your life that brings glory to God and spreads life, and there is a way to live your life which brings shame to God and, in a sense, extends death around you. A right and a wrong way. But that idea is being challenged more and more in our culture today, as it has always been on this sort of downward spiral. Uh, But more and more today, we recognize this idea to be challenged. People will say that there is no right way, there is no wrong way, or that the right and wrong way are so difficult to figure out that it's not even worth it. We all should just sort of live however we choose to live. Mahmoud Sharif Basuni was an international legal expert. He was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. He was a professor. And at an important lecture he gave in 2004, he said, that different religions are all equal in the eyes of God and should be seen as equal in the eyes of men. The judgment is not by the choice we make, but how we pursue the path of the choice we make. What he's saying here is the path we choose doesn't matter. Only the way in which we follow that path. 
So essentially what he's saying is, I could follow Jesus, I could follow Allah, I could follow the Book of Mormon. You know, these are sort of not, not very pernicious, right? I could also follow the Satanic Bible. I could also adopt some form of religious extremism. I could be a Christian nationalist in America today, right? Something tells me that Mahmoud Sharif Basuni would have a problem <laughs> with those who adopt extremist forms of religion in the way that they follow those extremist views. And he was the best of the best. He was one of the brightest. He, this is a guy that helped sort out the ethnic and religious conflict in Rwanda. <laughs> and he stood in front of a group of students and said, it doesn't matter what path you follow. He's saying to the world, do what you want. Psalm 1 says, do not do what you want. And we should agree. Psalm 1 very clearly paints a picture wherein all paths are not equal. It says there is only one path. It teaches that there is a path that is greater than all other paths and that it is a life and death matter. Psalm 1 teaches us that there is a way to live and a way to die. And you choose one of those ways. So the way we're going to look at the psalm as we walk through it together is sort of, uh, when, I, when I had the idea, it sounded better, but now I'm about to say it out loud and it sounds kind of dismal. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to study two ways to die in the, as we look at this psalm. We're going to kind of look at it as like how to die 101 and how to die 102 uh, for students in the room. And then we're going to look at how to live, how to live, okay? So death 101, right? Uh, fewer and fewer people are believing, as we said, that there's a right way and a wrong way when it comes to very weighty matters, right? When it comes to very important things, people are very you know, wary of saying like, well, I believe it's this way or, or that way. They don't want to do it. But when it comes to simple matters, uh, we're very courageous to take very strong stands on what's right and wrong. Take, for instance, how you organize your closet or your dresser. Do you use the spark joy method? Or the home edit method? Right? Uh, did you hire California closets? Right? I, I'm a straight condo man. Uh, all my shirts are rolled and ordered by color. Okay? It's silly, but if you look at some of social media, people are literally like Nazi about this thing, right? They disdain people who use this other method. Now there are books being written about how freeing it is to just be terribly messy and leave your stuff all over the place, <laughs> right? It's like if someone organizes different than you, it's like you've been listening to the counsel of the wicked, you know, organize like me. But when it comes to major issues, really important issues, nobody wants to say what you should do or what you shouldn't do. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to take our way of life and put it on someone else's way of life. There's a serious problem with this. Stephen Garber, if you know the name, he's a Christian thinker. 
and writer, and he wrote a book called Visions of Vocation. And he writes about this effort through the Harvard uh, Kesey School of Business called the Protection Project. And the Protection Project is a work, uh, an international work that seeks to end uh, global trafficking of people uh, and to minister and help those who are stuck in the sex trade and child slave labor. And Stephen Garber was interviewing the director of the Protection Project, and she reported to him that, you know, these students, she gets these students from Harvard and other Ivy League schools, and Garber sends some of his students to work with her project as well. Uh, they come, they hang around at the project for a couple weeks, they get used to the situation, uh, they get used to how things are going in the field and in the office, they're doing their work, and these are super smart, Ivy League-trained uh, young men and women, and they'll sit down with her at some point, many of them, and say, you know, who are we to actually say that this kind of trafficking is wrong here in Pakistan? Isn't it a little parochial of us to say that this is, is wrong for them? I mean, it's wrong for us. Yeah, don't get me wrong. You know, it's, it's wrong for us, but maybe it's not wrong for these people here. Now, the director's encouragement to Garber was this. She said, The issues we address are too real. They matter too much. I need more students like the one you sent me because I need people who believe that there is basic right and wrong in the universe. In other words, there's evil in the world. We don't have time to talk about it. We have time to do something about it, but we don't have time to talk about it. There is a bottom line wickedness in the world that we have to be able to point to and say, that's wicked. The psalmist is saying there is a wrong way. There's a wrong way to be. There's a wrong way to go. And if we look at verse 1, he makes it very clear. He says this, Blessed is the man who walks not. He's telling us what the blessed person does not do. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, or some of your translations say scoffers. Now the idea here of this, you know, uh, uh, walk, stand, sit, is that there is a, there's a downward spiral in the life of, and mind of a person, of a human. There, there's a downward spiral as we are attracted to wickedness in the world. He's not even saying what wickedness is. He's not even saying what wrong or evil is. He's just saying there's a downward spiral. You walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, you start to listen to what the wicked are saying. You go, huh, what are they saying? And then you stop and you stand and you tune in. Here's what the wicked are saying. And then you actually sit down under the counsel of the wicked. There's a downward spiral into this wickedness. Now, students who have been attracted to a program to stop global sex trafficking, who gradually 
slow down, stop, and sit down and say, maybe this isn't wrong after all. Have been attracted to wickedness. Can we say that? They've heard other voices telling them the opposite of what is right, the opposite of what is good. They have stopped moving in the right direction. They've started to settle down, and now they have taken a seat with the wicked. That's the progression. That's what the psalmist is trying to show us. Now, this whole analogy, we've, we've been pointing fingers, right? <laughs> I've, I've been saying, hey, look at them over there. This is, this is a bad thing that's happening. We can point fingers at all the wickedness that we can find in the world, but we all should be asking ourselves, who are my counselors? Who are my counselors? Where do I get my counsel? What voices do I listen to? You know, Wordsworth said, the world is too much with us. He didn't have that little thing in his pocket that he could take out any time, <laughs> right? And hear myriad voices telling him all kinds of things all the time. We have literally a cacophony of wicked counsel at our fingertips all the time. All the time. Now, how often do we stop and ask ourselves, who are our counselors? How often do we go a little bit further and say, are these wicked counselors? As we plop down on the couch after dinner and turn on the cable news, who are your counselors? We should be asking ourselves these questions regularly. Because take, take whatever uh, culture-dividing idea that we've seen blow up in the last four or five years. Take any one of those ideas and, and pull the Christians out of those groups, either side. If, if Christians on either side of any of those debates would be listening more to the counsel of the word of God than they are to the wicked counselors on their social media or their cable news choices, we would be making much more progress than we are now. Christians on both sides are saying some of the dumbest stuff I have ever heard about anything. Dumb and ungodly to boot, you know, I mean, it's got to be both. Why? Church, we are listening to the counsel of the wicked. We are listening to wicked counsel. We're stopping by the way, we're pulling right up. And listening, and we're sitting down underneath that council. And if you try to preach the gospel while sitting under the council of the wicked, no one will hear you. No one will hear you. Many in the church have adopted another message that has overshadowed the gospel. So we have to take heed to the kind of counsel we're receiving. It could be wicked. Now, it's good to note, as we look back at the psalm, that there's no like category of sort of wicked. <laughs> right? There, there's, there's no, the, this hard edge doesn't get smoothed out by the psalmist here. 
There's no sort of wicked. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. What's at stake for the wicked is not social status. What's at stake for the wicked is not their bank accounts. Uh, It's not their popularity. What's at stake for the wicked is their contentment, fulfillment, peace of mind, their very lives. And most certainly, their lives after the grave. Their eternal lives are what's at stake here. That's That's what this language is being used for. They literally are dust in the wind. What the psalmist is getting at here is is an early, true version of a doctrine of hell. The doctrine of damnation, destruction, whatever you want to call it. It's offensive. We don't like to talk about it. But you can't escape someone without talking about it. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you are a follower of Jesus who struggles with this doctrine, don't for one minute believe that this is just a Christian belief or just a religious belief. There is a very pernicious secular version of this because there's no redemption in the secular version. If you listen to what Activists on both sides of today's issues are saying about one another. They are literally cursing each other to death. (laughs) If you listen to the terrible, vile, and violent language of people, even Christians, on different sides of today's issues, they believe the other side is wicked. And they want the other side to blow away like chaff, never to be heard from again. They want their memory expunged from the earth. This is the level of hatred that we see outside of the church, in the secular world. Christians have to ask themselves if there is room for Jesus within these viewpoints. Because if there's no room for Jesus, there may not be room for you. If He is your Lord. Whether people are burning down cities or trampling the halls of our government or just cursing people on cable news, there's no room for Christ within these kinds of perspectives. So take care when you talk about wickedness. There's no sort of wicked. They blow away like chaff. The psalmist is telling us that for the wicked, hell is real. Hell is a thing to be anticipated by those who are under the counsel of the wicked. And you might be saying, I'm so glad I'm a New Testament Christian and that Jesus does not talk about hell like this. (laughs) I'm so glad... That in the New Testament, we don't have to worry about these kinds of images of chaff blowing away. Well, you'd be wrong. 
If you look at Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse, verse 40, Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quoth Jesus, okay? These are terrible images. These should be heart-wrenching images for anyone. These are images that Jesus has designed to communicate the truth and the reality of hell for the wicked. Now, you know, there, there, are, there certainly are other Christian perspectives. Some would come out and say, well, yes, Jesus was speaking metaphorically. <laughs> I don't care. I don't want a metaphorical fiery furnace in my afterlife. I don't want a real one. I don't want a metaphorical one. I don't want to know what it feels like to be gnashing my teeth for eternity. I don't want it, okay? So you can take the metaphors uh, any way you want. I don't want anything like that. Why does Jesus use this language if not because it's real? And Jesus knew Psalm 1. Jesus had a doctrine of hell that he learned from the Old Testament. He knew that there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked. He knew that there's a difference between the right path and the wrong path. So we can kind of take a step back and we can say, okay, dust in the wind, gnashing of teeth, that's for the wrong path, that's for the wicked, that's for the bad people. You know, glad I'm not one of them. Okay, and I, I think... It's okay to say, I am not wicked, right? I, I can't walk around everywhere I go saying, I'm wicked, I'm wicked. No, it's okay. Take a breather, all right? I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying you're a bad person. <laughs> Take a breath, all right? Let's pause. That's death 101, all right? So you've learned how to write an essay. You've learned the uh, five-paragraph method. You've got the basics down. Uh, but now... It's time to move on to advanced composition. This is death 102. The first death is death by wickedness. We can see that. But there is a second death. Okay? We know there's a downward spiral toward wicked, wickedness. We know when you settle down at the bottom of that spiral, you become like the wicked, and we know what's waiting for the wicked at the end of that path. But what does the righteous do? How does the righteous person behave? Psalm 1 tells us in verse 2 this. Very simple. The righteous delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Oh, it's so simple and beautiful, right? There's no list here of what the righteous ought to do. There's no checklist. There's no moral list. There's no voting list. There's no list of acceptable denominations. There's no football team you have to root for today. None of those things. He just says the righteous person goes to the word of God. The righteous person meditates on it. It's kind of a constant static Practice. This is what the righteous person does. He comes back to the word of God over and over 
again. And David, in this case, refers to this as the law. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And I know that word law can, again, be offensive. It feels rigid. It feels legalistic. We don't want more laws. We want freedom. Uh, And yet you have to understand what David was getting at here. And and most of you know that uh, in the Hebrew, this, this word law is simply Torah in this context and in many others. And most of you know that this word Torah references simply the first five books of the Bible. So when David says, meditate on the law here, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the Levitical laws. He's not just talking about any of those things. He's talking about a unifying principle of life. A unifying principle of life represented by these five books that certainly includes the Ten Commandments and includes the Levitical law, but more so tells the story of God's creation, tells of his priorities and of his character and how a person can follow God's way and how a person can have eternal life in tune with the creator of the universe. And David says, you do that by being tuned in to this, tuned in to God's word, statically saturated by the way of God. That's what he's talking about. A constant, confirmed, loving meditation on God's word. Now let's think about this. I have children. I know many of you have children. I know there are some children in the room. Let's say I say to my children, I'd like you to be home by midnight. Uh, And at 11.59 and 59 seconds, a grumpy teenager drags himself across the threshold. Fine, Dad, you know. Is that obedience? No, it's not. (laughs) It's enough, I guess. (laughs) But it's not obedience. Or let's say, for instance, I say, hey, guys, let's get this kitchen cleaned up. Do I want four slump-shouldered, grumpy, sour-pussed, I want to add any more adjectives, young men shuffling around the kitchen? What do we do now? What do we do next? You know? No, that's not what I want, right? I want... Young men committed to my way, (laughs) right? Uh, I want young men responding to the standards I have established. No, but seriously, I I want people to be committed to my way. I I want them to be committed to my way with love for me, with love for my wife, with love for my home, with an appreciation of what's come before them and hope for the future, right? But it's true. It all works together, right? That's what we want. Now, that's a, that's a family analogy, but you know, if you're an employer or an employee, you excel when you adopt the views and uh, the perspectives and the work ethic of the person with whom or for whom you're working. That's how you excel. 
You don't excel by just doing the bare minimum. You don't excel by rolling your eyes. You have to literally watch your whole body when you're working for someone. You excel when the person for whom you work knows that you are with him or her. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 5, verse 21, when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus goes straight to the heart. Jesus says, you don't kill people? Great. Nobody should be killing people. (laughs) I want you to love people. Oh, I I didn't take this job to love people. I just took this job not to kill people, you know. Jesus says, no, it's not enough. I want your heart to be overflowing with the kind of love that I have for people. That's my way. That's the way of the righteous. You see, the the rule aspect of the law is just barely scratching the surface of righteousness. Barely scratching the surface. And so the psalmist is talking to us about being committed to the way of God. And so if you really want to enter the life of the righteous... You have to unify yourself to that unifying principle of righteousness. And so if we go with David's formula, you have to know it. You have to be meditating on this Torah, right? You have to be meditating on the word of God uh, in such a thorough way that you follow it all the time, perfectly, for all the right reasons. All the time, perfectly, for all the right reasons. What's the result for the person that does this? Verses 3 through 4 tells us, This person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. That means it's reliable. This person is reliable. This person always produces fruit when she's supposed to. Even when the drought comes, Everything else is dried out and crusty. This tree has a thick, deep root system. It stands strong and produces. It's lush and beautiful. If you're going to cut this tree down, you need to come with a crew, heavy machinery, and even then, your blades will probably break on it. But the wicked are not so, the psalm says. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. These two images are set up for us to see the the vast chasm between the righteous and the wicked. That righteous tree, you can't take it down. But the wicked chaff, one simple tool and the wind Grab it with a pitchfork, throw it in the air. It's gone. Dust in the wind. Completely separated from anything meaningful. There's nothing holding it together. It drifts away. Again, we can be glad. That's not me. Right? I'm not that. If I'm not the wicked chaff, then I must be the righteous. Right? 
Remember, we're still talking about death 102. Let's go a, a little meta. Let's do that cool new drone thing they do when they're, look, they're down low looking at something and then suddenly you're like, how is this camera doing this? And you realize it's on a drone and you're like 10,000 feet in the air looking down on something now. That's what we're doing, okay? Let's go meta. Who is David talking about? Is, is David talking about himself? I don't think so. <laughs> if you know about David's life, he can't be talking about himself, okay? Is he talking about his own personal experience? Eh, hard to say. Did the first Israelites who used this psalm in worship think that they were talking about David? Praise be to David, the tree planted by streams of water. I don't think so. Did they see this as a template for themselves? Hard to, hard to think that this lofty goal could be attained by one of us. Do you ever think this is true of your pastor? Do you ever look at yourself and see a strong tree planted by streams of water like the psalm says? I think we all know this is not true of me. It's not true of you. But it's true. So what are we talking about? What the heck are we talking about? <laughs> what do we believe? What are we saying we believe here in this place? I got to ask for permission to do something that is a bozo no-no for pastors the last 10, 15 years. Uh, I will be asking for verbal affirmation. May I please use an analogy from the original Matrix movie? <laughs> if, if you agree, say yes. Okay. All right. For those of you who disdain science fiction or that movie or have never seen it, I apologize. Okay. Um, and maybe we can take this part out of the sermon. I don't want to be brought before the presbytery. Um, so you remember there's this scene in The Matrix uh, where, and if you haven't seen it, okay, so there's like this virtual world, kind of like a video game where you can put your head, your mind inside of it and do all kinds of things that you never thought you could do, okay? So they're in this virtual world and they're training how to fight because they have to beat the baddies, okay? So the uh, experienced Lawrence Fishburne character has to train the inexperienced Keanu Reeves character how to fight in the Matrix so that they can beat the baddies inside this virtual space. And uh, the Keanu Reeves character downloads all this information into his cerebral cortex somehow with a plug, and then he goes into the virtual space, and he's like, I know how to fight. And they start fighting in this virtual space, okay? For those of you over 50, it's like a video game that you're actually in. It's like putting, you know, the goggles on and fighting. Uh, so they're fighting in this space, and, you know, the Keanu Reeves character just thinks he's going to dominate because he's so excited about this, but no matter what he does, he can't beat the Fishburne character. They're fighting, 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 and Reeves can't beat Fishburne. Uh, and so at some point, you know, he's huffing and puffing and he's sweating and Lawrence Fishburne says to Keanu Reeves, come on, man, you think you're breathing air right now? Because they're in this virtual space, right? And Reeves goes, oh, 
And then he gets it. The laws of physics and physiology don't apply in this virtual space. And he can do whatever he wants, right? He's totally free. And then he does some really cool moves, beats Lawrence Fishburne, and that's the end, okay? So, uh, but what he realizes is that for the whole duration of that fight, he had been just beating the air. That his actions were meaningless. And what I want to suggest to you is that Christians are running around thinking that this word from Psalm 1 is about us. We think it's about our righteousness. We think that this word we're looking at is about how we behave. Think about the pettiness of your behavior. Okay? Think about the pettiness of your behavior. Husbands and wives, how you treat each other. <laughs> Kids, dumb stuff you say. Right? Think about the pettiness of your behavior. How could this psalm be about our behavior? It's dumb to think that, okay? I'm sorry. We think the truth of this teaching is governed by a system of laws that is, it does not exist. We're beating at the air. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about how we walk. It's not about what we read. It's not about how we vote. It's not about how much we tell the truth or lie. It's not about how we perform. It's not about how our kids perform. Go a little deeper. It's not about sexual purity. It's not about addictions. It's not about those things. You can try to make it about that. But you will get beat every time. Every time, Lawrence Fishburne will say, you think you're breathing air in here? And you'll have to realize afresh that you're not. And so now you see how death number two works. It's death by righteousness. Death by supposed righteousness. We're trying to be something we can't be. And you know that if you think you're something, that's probably proof that you ain't. So that's death 102 in a nutshell, if we look at our syllabus today. <laughs> Jesus promotes this teaching, right? He says in Matthew 5.20 to his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus picks the pinnacle ideal, right? He says the scribes and Pharisees literally have every word of the Torah memorized. They follow every single law in there, and they make up more laws to ensure that they follow the laws that are there. And he's talking to these uneducated fishermen who have no, maybe even don't know how to read, and he's saying to them, unless you're more righteous than those guys, you are not righteous and you cannot go to heaven. Okay? Death by righteousness. So we have to find out how to get life. We have to understand how this psalm gets us to life. I don't want to be wicked, but I know I'm not righteous, like this psalm is talking about. So how do we get there? All right, so let's talk about how to live. This is it. If not 
through righteous obedience to the law, how do I get life? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, is there no standard of conduct for the Christian? Is there no standard of ethical behavior for the Christian? There is. There is a standard of ethical behavior for the Christian. It it is found in God's word. There is conduct we are supposed to abide by. The Bible gives us some very clear standards to which we are to be held. You can go to my church's website and look at our standard of ethics. It's very unpopular. (laughs) Okay? I don't know if anybody noticed, but the Bible's standards of ethics are very unpopular. We have a standard of conduct that we derive from Scripture. So, am I saying that we can do whatever we want? No. But on the other hand, yes. No and yes. First, no. No, you can't do whatever you want. There's a standard of conduct. (laughs) Okay? If you're a Christian, you need to be held accountable for the Bible's standard of conduct. Now, a big mistake we make is when we try to hold unbelievers to the Bible's standard of conduct. That's when people get really screwed up. And you've probably heard about this whole deconstruction thing and people like, we're leaving the church. I think in many of those cases, those are people that never became Christians but were pressured to conform to a standard of conduct that when all the supports fell away from and they had nothing else, they said, well, why am I even a Christian? Oh, I guess I'm not. All right? So, no... We can't just do whatever we want. But we have to recognize that we can't really approach the standard of conduct without a new heart. Without a heart that is for God and for his word. It's like the analogy of of being an employer, being a teenager in a home, right? You've got to adopt the views of the one who's in charge before you can adopt his or her standard of conduct. So I'm not saying we can do whatever we want. We have to pursue God's way. Christian, pursue God's way. Pursue his standard of conduct for sexual purity, for justice, for how you handle your finances. Yes, pursue that. But on the other hand, we ask again, can we do anything we want? The troubling answer is yes. You can do whatever you want. What I'm saying is that the Bible's standard of conduct does not necessarily have anything to do with your eternal life. Let me say that again. The Bible's standard of conduct does not necessarily have anything to do with your eternal life. The Bible's standard of conduct does not necessarily have anything to do with how well you know God. That's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. They have it memorized, word for word, and yet they don't know God. Our standard of conduct, even if it's ultra-biblical, does not save us, does not provide eternal life. So we can beat the air all we want with our works and with our righteousness. 
but we're not going anywhere. That's why Paul called the gospel a scandal. Because he stood up and said, listen, you can be the dirtiest, nastiest scoundrel and Jesus will save you. And people said, what? Scandalous. Paul said, no, seriously, anybody can come to Jesus. doesn't matter how you live your life. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your standard of conduct is. You can come to Jesus. And they said, you have to be crazy. Paul said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your national origin. It doesn't matter your political party. It doesn't matter what you're addicted to. It doesn't matter what you say your gender orientation is. It doesn't matter any of those things. You can come to Jesus and have eternal life. We can talk about the standard of conduct as your heart is being renewed by the gospel. This is why it's, I think, I think this is why it's so hard for many really well-behaved unbelievers to come to Christ. Really, like people that don't believe in Jesus who have very high standards of conduct because they say, look at how generous we are. Look at how loving we are. Look at all that we've done. Look at the justice we fight for. Look at all that we've done. But the Bible says if you don't know Jesus, it all blows away like chaff. It all disappears and leads to death. So we only have one option. And this is, the, this is the come home to Jesus part. This is the part that Christians should be excited about. This is what makes us Christians. There's no surprises here, okay? The other things don't make us Christians. Our standard of conduct doesn't make us a Christian. Trust in Jesus is what makes us a Christian. That's what accomplishes it. Nobody has to perform to a certain level in order to be accepted by me or by God. Every time I hear that, I just go, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. And it is. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to just go do whatever we want. Okay? Because listen, you go do whatever you want, you're, there's going to be pieces to pick up. There are going to be consequences. It makes life hard. Right? To, to disobey the standard of conduct that God gives us in the Bible, it'll mess you up. <laughs> but you can be safe in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. You can get messed up. And you can be safe in Jesus. If we're just following a moral code, or if we're just leaning more on the side of a moral code, what's distinguishing about us? Nothing. Everybody has a moral code. Some people are just making it up on the fly. Some people follow other religious texts. Everybody's got a moral code. If all we have is a moral code, what distinguishes us? Jesus has a claim that trumps every code. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
will perish. But then when Jesus comes in John chapter 14, he's talking to Thomas, right? And he says, oh, Thomas, you know the Psalms. (laughs) He doesn't actually say that, but he says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You might say, no one can be righteous but through me. Jesus is the prosperous one. He is the tree planted by streams of water. Stop trying to be good. Start following Jesus and trusting him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word uh, that, has, uh, that you have persevered for so many generations, for thousands of years. You have uh, connected the psalmist's words to the life and ministry of your son, Jesus. Uh, you have connected the life and ministry of your son, Jesus, to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would Uh, water and nourish this word in us that we may live courageously and boldly for the truth, but so that we may never waver from the true path of the righteous, which is to trust Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.